Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 193, recorded for December 21st, 2022. The Cloud Pod was less productive in 2022. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. Hey, Justin. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, happy holidays to you both. Our last show for 2022, we're taking next week off. So enjoy your time off. And we'll be back the first week of January with a new show and see what happened over Christmas break, which I assume will be slow, other than Amazon will announce like 100 new <laughs> what's new posts about things that we don't care about uh, as they're kind of looking at it. So it's been, a, it's been a fun year. It's been busy. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm, I'm ready to take some R&R and to uh, relax and wind down this year. Uh, before we all spin up again for 2023. And, uh, you know, we have uh, lots of plans ahead for the Cloud Pod. We did some first this year. We have live streamed reInvent. That was fun. We uh, we had some new guests. We uh, we did lots of different things. So it was great. Peter, unfortunately, couldn't make it tonight uh, due to family obligations that he told us about 10 minutes before the show. So thanks, Peter. <laughs> appreciate it. As always, consideration is appreciated. So he, uh, we have no prediction for him. Uh, so we don't, you know, next year we'll be laughing at him and reminding him of the fact that he was not here for a prediction show. Maybe we should look <laughs> so, for him. Yeah. It'll be funny though. If he, if he didn't make a prediction and then by the end of next year, we realize that nothing really happened in cloud. <laughs> Even yeah. by default. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the prediction well, is nothing amazing will happen in cloud <laughs> for yeah. 2023. Yeah. Well, the chip shortage and, you know, imminent global war. Yeah. I can yeah. see why innovation might be stunted slightly. <laughs> yeah, although I know you know they are saying chip shortages are starting to lift, and we're seeing you know with the crypto falling through the floor thanks to FTX, uh, you know chips are suddenly available in you know high end computing again. So that's a nice change of pace from uh, 2021 and 2020, where you couldn't get that stuff for months at a time. Yeah, they can't give them away anymore. Yep. I, even I've seen uh, some of the computer sellers are saying that, you know, they won't return, <laughs> you can't return video cards anymore. Because <laughs> they're like, no, we're not taking them back. You bought them, you're yours, <laughs> you now own them. Uh, well, it was a relatively quiet week, but there was um, some interesting general news stories that we talked about before we get into our 2022 look back and 2023 predictions. Uh, so, so first up, uh, Salesforce founder and CEO Mark Benoff uh, said in an internal chat room on Slack that new employees hired during the pandemic in 2021 and 2022 are especially facing much lower productivity. Then he asked a bunch of open-ended questions about, you know, is this a reflection of their office policy? Uh, are they not building tribal knowledge employees? Uh, and they have, up to this point, been very much on the hybrid work uh, side of the equation, saying they're going to be a hybrid-first workforce. Uh, although they did, after their latest earnings miss, uh, start calling some employees back into the office at least a few days a week. Um, I did take a look at it because I was curious. Uh, Pre-pandemic, Salesforce had 35,000 employees and now has 73,000. Maybe that's part of your lower productivity. Wow. <laughs> just just going to say, uh, you know, when you have that many more people to coordinate and work together, uh, there's a lot more expense in the machine in some ways. So uh, what do you guys think about this? Uh, are lower productivity, is that what you guys are seeing in your, your teams for 2022 and 2021, the new hires? I, I can speak for myself and say that this is the first job transition I've made where I've not gone to an office to, to be onboarded and not gone and met a team in person every day for months before transitioning to working from home. And it is definitely difficult. It's much slower to get to find things. It's much more difficult to reach people. You don't bump into people and, and uh, sort of make friends quite so easily, or make acquaintances at least. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that the different type of social interaction uh, has a huge effect on especially onboarding new employees. I also think it's been a very stressful couple of years. I mean, the, the constant threat of, of uh, you know, deadly, deadly illnesses going around is, uh, you know, and the change of people's sort of life routines, kids sent home from school if they got a sniffle. It's, it's been difficult to, um, to be a good employee sometimes, I think. And if you, you know, you think about, you know, there's, yeah, just that, you know, it's, if you're blocked because you don't know the answer to a question, you don't know who to reach out to, like, you're just going to step away, right? There's no way to really, if, when you're in an office, you're, you're at least looking around morosely and someone hopefully will take pity on you. But, uh, you know, like that's, it's just, it's not as easy. Um, and so you have to wait, you know, a lot of teams are distributed globally. So sometimes you're waiting for someone to 
to wake up that you can ask ask a question. So it makes it makes sense. Um, I do think that you know, like most large trends, you know the the reaction to this will be pretty swift. I don't think it'll be a full rollback of like okay, back in the office, right? I think it's going to be, uh, a, you know, focus at many many levels of the enterprise on that onboarding process, on putting the documentation that someone needs in place, and then also creating you know much more con- more conduits for, for internal communication that's more social and centralized. Um, I hope Teams is listening and they they figure out their user management within the Teams construct um, and either make chats a real boy or <laughs> or uh, where that can be targets to automation or, or figure out how to fix the the limits. So because that's it's completely stifling right now in my day job. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of things in Teams that are stifling to my day job. <laughs> so uh, I, access is one of many problems with it, uh, but, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have them fix some of those fundamental issues, but it's Microsoft. So they're never going to listen to their customer. That's, I mean, that's the thing about Microsoft is that you're never, you never feel listened to unless you pay them, you know, $500 million a year. And then all of a sudden you're a big, important customer to them. But you know, any, any reasonable size enterprise, they're like, yeah, here's our overpriced support that won't help you and best of luck to you. But uh, yeah, I also wonder if some of the Salesforce's problems are that they, you know, they've got a lot of tech debt, they've got a lot of complexity, they're kind of stagnated on the cloud migration to AWS. Uh, you know, I know they're trying to be multi-cloud as well. Um, you know, I, I, Salesforce is a beast. It's a complicated product that's been around for a long time now. And, you know, is it just, you know, sort of slowing down on its own just based on the complexity, the fact that customers on their side, you know, don't want changes fast anymore. And they just, you know, and then you add in the pandemic factors to it and the number of people and a bunch of processes that probably aren't scaling well. Like there's it's so many things that are probably impacting Salesforce that are beyond the pandemic. <laughs> but it's easy to blame the pandemic and work from home as your first blame. Well, we uh, have been playing with it quite a bit here at the Cloud Pod, but the uh, all these new chat GPT, uh, chat AI, chat AI playgrounds, all of from open AI are taking the world by storm. And there was a great article in uh, the information about the cottage industry of bot builders exploding around side of chat GPT. Uh, it's a huge investment area, potential big value. We're seeing startups apparently investing in, uh, you know, low code, no code solutions around chat AI services and how you can do, uh, you know, process automation that way. And so there's potentially a huge market industry coming uh, around this. But of course, they don't pay for any of this yet because OpenAI hasn't quite figured out how to monetize any of it. Uh, and that's going to be an interesting reality of like, does this become a cloud service that, you know, is consumed by cloud? Uh, and Sam Walt, uh, Sam Altman, the uh, CEO of OpenAI said, said uh, he tweeted, you'll have to monetize it somehow. At some point, the compute costs are eye-watering, which is what I say every time I see my cloud build. So it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody do an estimate based on the number of users and the number of queries and uh, the compute time required to run the model. And, th- and it was, you know, it was in the order of, million dollars plus a day in compute but look at the free advertising they're getting out of this oh yeah i mean yeah it's just mind-blowing and we were talking before you arrived uh in the chat thing earlier ryan about how if you could bring along unit tests and data in and what data you expect out you can automate the entire process of writing the code and testing the code and if it fails it goes back and tries again uh if it passes then great but it's taking you 30 seconds to write write something um, it's sort of getting into the, the, the Star Trek realm of, of uh, automation. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's some of the stuff, you know, as we were playing around over the last few days, like that was coming out of these bots, like is really just astounding, right? Like it's super cool. And then immediately, like also terrifying, right? Like it's um, like more, you know, more mostly fear of the unknown, but it's just like, it's really good. Right. And so, knowing humans like it's you know there's going to be abuse out there and there's going to be things and i worry when the prices are so high for this compute that the temptation to monetize this by influencing the models to you know like you can like a pay-to-play sort of thing where you can direct different things in the in the ai model and that stuff and i just you know it's gonna sort of muddy the waters and what it can do 
Yeah, what, what I hope doesn't happen is is first they make it free and easy, and a bunch of people lose their jobs because now you can write software in you know the blink of an eye, and then all of a sudden it becomes very expensive. And now we don't have it seems the software developers, and we're dependent on this service which now costs a fortune. And instead of paying engineers, we're, we're paying for uh, you know, the evil compute button in the sky. Yeah. But um, I was talking to somebody earlier uh, to sort of dissuade them from going into software engineering as a as a role, and I I gave. This chat GPT is an example, and the, right, literally right in front of her, I said, "Look, I, I can, we'll ask you to write a Python program to upload documents from your documents folder to Amazon S3 every day at a predetermined time." And it was spot on with comments and everything. <laughs> really, like yeah. it generated all, all the code. All it, the, it tells uh, it walks you through step by step exactly what it's going to do. It sets up the virtual environment, it installs Boto and the uh, scheduler module. Writes the function to upload. It's it's just just mind blowing. That's it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we talked about all the time the the problem with low code, no code that we were complaining about is that the gap between those solutions and then the bespoke development that you typically would need when you hit the edge cases is you know mountains of distance. But with this, you know, you can see how sudden. Okay, well, now I just have to tell the computer what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take this object. I'm trying to transform it into something else. And then the computer can determine what type of code to write for that. That it's really potentially interesting time, you know. Like, is the era of the software development, you know, going to change dramatically? Yes, it's going to change. Uh, and you and you even see it with some of the um, the Git services and some of the code stuff from Amazon, you know, with the automation and auto completes and stuff like that. It's, it's been getting better for a while, and so it, it'll be interesting to see how it impacts. Luckily, I'm on the cloud side and. Uh, you have to see the chat GPT figure out how to make cloud work better. So <laughs> I think we're okay for a little bit. But uh, you know, definitely uh, it's going to be interesting to see how things evolve in the next you know, 20 years, 30 years. Are software developers a thing in 30 years from now? I don't know. So in the, in the light round, I had chat GPT write a joke for me. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, me know. let me know if you guess which one. Right. <laughs> but I mean, the caveat to the whole thing is that it's it's great at, at redoing things that it's already learned and already seen. It's it has no imagination, and so if somebody makes a new Python module or a new service or a new function, it doesn't know about that, and it won't do for you know another yeah. six to twelve months after they've spent another uh, you know five million dollars retraining the model. And so I, I think although it doesn't be very helpful in the short term for writing a lot of the the boilerplate type stuff. I think once we get into very specific use cases, it'll still require people to go in and you know add the finishing touches. Hand finished, I think, is is the phrase. Well, even even in the you know the writing prompts we gave it, like I, I was joking and I prompted like write a write a sassy resignation letter or something like that. And like, you read it like after you've read a few of those type of things that you've given it, they all start to sort of sound the same. <laughs> They're very you know non-specific and and you know very much. You can tell they're somewhat written by a machine <laughs> at some point, right? They, they're missing a piece of humanity to them, uh, which I think kind of gives them away a little bit. So I suspect that as we get more familiar with them, we'll also be able to see them more clearly when we're like, oh, this is a bot. Like, I can tell just the way it, it's not a normal interaction. But maybe yeah. it gets better over time, and maybe I'm wrong, and <laughs> we're all, we have no idea. But it, at least what I've seen so far, like when it, it does art or it does. Uh, write the story or tells you a joke. They all have a sort of pattern, a sort of uh, cadence to them, which is a common, you know, common ones. But like they just are missing something. They're missing that piece that pushes them over the edge. Mm-hmm. And I think with it, like any technology improvement, right? It's not like it's going to completely replace. Like there'll be no, you know, no software developers. No, the software developers will be more focused on, you know, something very specific, right? And it's the same thing. Like cloud is introduced a whole lot of stuff where we're not spending nearly as much time on infrastructure and network and, and, you know, running fiber. It's specialized that to, you know, providers. And it's going to be a very similar sort of transition, I think, where, yeah, the, the amount of time spent, you know, integrating internal systems and and creating glue code for things will be drastically reduced, but yeah, core product development, maybe they, they're enabled to do bigger and better things, hopefully. Well, have uh, you guys heard of a little single sign-on company called Okta, perhaps? Once or twice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they've had a rough year. I think they like just to rice 2022 off the boards <laughs> completely. Uh, starting you know early in the year with the Lapsus uh, claiming that they had hacked Okta's admin console through a phishing campaign, which they apparently did. Uh, and their poor, poor handling of all of that. <laughs> you know, They are now back in the news again because apparently they... Uh, 
leaked their internal source code through GitHub. Uh, their private GitHub repository were hacked earlier in the month. On um, Believing Computer obtained a confidential security incident notification that Okta has been emailing to its security contacts uh, this morning. And we have confirmed that multiple sources, including IT admins, have been receiving this email notification. Uh, Okta says that they do not rely on the confidentiality of their source code as a means to secure its services, and so no customer data was impacted, which Yet. that's a stretch. Because <laughs> if I have the source code, I can figure out where you might have a flaw or, or you're not properly exception handling something, and now I have an attack vector that I wouldn't have known about if I didn't have your source code. So uh, I don't know if I completely agree with that statement, but uh, it's interesting. I did check the Okta blogs and the Okta security stuff, and it's not on their public website. So again, still haven't really learned how to disclose things properly. Yeah. I just hope that the the previous hack isn't what allowed this hack to happen months later. You know, somebody somebody forgot to change the uh, the admin account password for for GitHub, or that a user wasn't created at, at the time during that hack when that laptop was compromised. Yeah, because that and, would be that would be some serious egg on their face. And even if it is like the same same method of attack, right? Like, you know, it's not not the same exploit, but like it's another social engineering sort of phishing attempt or something like that like that sucks right like because that's just culturally what's that going to do to that the the employees and and it's just it's, i hate i hate how brutalized and how uh aware you just have to be these days because it's you know i get several phishing attempts and you know more most of them hilariously blatant but a week now and it's just like something you have to be really really aware of because if a good one comes through it's really easy. Well, uh, they, I, I take it back. Uh, they did put a post on their on their website. <laughs> finally, yeah. Uh, you know, again, hours later, after it already on the news, and they said the security event detail below pertains to Octa Workforce Identity Cloud code repositories. It does not pertain to Auth Zero, although that happened earlier in the year. By the way, Auth Zeros were uh, exposed, uh, and apparently, GitHub alerted Octa about possible suspicious access to the Octa code repositories, and that's when they investigated to determine that yes, their code had been downloaded by a third party. Uh, and that they have now rotated all their GitHub credentials, and they are putting controls in place to prevent this from happening again. You think after a breach of potentially the size of Lapsus, you think that security would be getting properly funded, though, <laughs> so this wouldn't be an issue. It's not like they don't charge enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the flip argument is that it's it's also really easy because it could just be as simple as you know. Um, someone getting their GitHub password compromised, right? Yeah. Using or using an active session somehow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. It could be a phishing attack again. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, it could be credentials, you know, got sniffed by some other process or some other, you know, there's all kinds of ways they could have gotten there. So, all right, well, let's move on to 2022 predictions. So a year ago, uh, about this time, I don't remember when we recorded it, you guys made predictions uh, about what you thought was going to happen in 2023. Uh, and I made one too. And uh, we did not so great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we ever done great, I don't think we have. Uh, Ryan, you predicted that Google would, Google would build the first data center region under the sea. <laughs> Sounds like something I would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you were clearly drinking at the time. So it's yeah, fine. obviously. <laughs> well, with climate change, maybe we'll revisit this prediction in uh, in a few years' time, and it will be under the sea. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But not for the reasons I was originally. Wow, well, I know technicality. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it could still happen. Like, I could see I, I, this is still. I mean, even when you made this prediction at the time, I was like, well, "That's a little crazy," but also yeah. not incredibly impossible because Microsoft did it. So why can't Google do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan, you predicted that Amazon release a new database service, going for that wide swing, <laughs> and you still missed. Because uh, as far <laughs> as I can remember, uh, Amazon did not release any new database service, and we were talking about it before the show that you know, yes, they announced some serverless things, but they're just extensions of existing database technology, so we won't count those. Like, Neptune serverless didn't get you what you wanted. Uh, I, I still think this problem needs to get solved, but uh, someone is going to solve the issue of designing apps that stretch from the cloud edge to the availability zone via SDK or programming tools. That is not, does not exist, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> in any serious way. Uh, I still think it's a problem. I still, you know, if someone wants to fund me on some startup dollars, I would maybe invest in this. <laughs> Uh, and then Peter, who's not here, he said that Fortune 500 companies will continue to avoid an all-in-one uh, single cloud vendor strategy in 2022, which I had a very compelling argument earlier in the year on a cloud cloud uh, court case that I feel like I rested my case on this, that he is wrong. Uh, so I, And he's not here to argue with me about it right now, so he's still wrong. <laughs> so uh, we, are, we have seen the language be changed a little bit from being you know, all-in but to preferred cloud, uh, which is basically the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. Well, but it is interesting because it's the, you know, to, to argue, uh, in Peter's absence, you know, the ch- language change itself, just the fact that they felt required to change it is, you know, a thing to me. Cause it is sort of like, that's, that's exactly what the intent behind that message is. It's like, we don't want to say we're going all in and one. We, we no longer think that a one cloud strategy makes sense. So we're going to, we're going to have a preferred one, which is the same thing. I agree with you. Um, but we're no longer messaging the same. So it's, it's a strange message to make, I think, in that it, it, it limits you automatically to, I mean, if, if you were to abide by what, what you said in the press release, that, that you were all in on one cloud, it Which limits no you to, to that particular <laughs> particular yeah. services set of products. And, and there are good services from Azure and there's good services from GCP and, and AWS. To limit yourself that way is, is probably not the best choice. It's bad business, yeah. And, you know, the reality behind these things is that it's not, technological driven it's not driven by anything other than business right there's there's money to be had there's there's cost to be offset by public announcements and press releases and and partnerships so like you know like it's that's why these things aren't abided to i think once the announcement's made is because the the technology choices will drive drive it in the end and if you can make a business case it's always going to trump whatever you've previously said Agreed. Well, it's time for 2023 predictions, uh, and I will ask you both to roll the dice in our chat room. Uh, I just rolled uh, to give you the syntax, but I rolled an eight. <laughs> oh, so you've won already. <laughs> I mean, eight, so I know Jonathan's higher. Never number. mind. He's, he's, you got 12. <laughs> so I can tie. <laughs> <laughs> and you got three. All right. I did so not tie. <laughs> it's Jonathan, me, and then Ryan. So, That's a good Jonathan, job, uh, last week, why don't you uh, why don't you give us your 2023 prediction? See how your crystal balls this year. See if you can uh, pull out a win for next year. And then when Peter's back, we'll we'll force him to give us a prediction. So my prediction is that Microsoft will release in preview an Azure branded, customizable version of the OpenAI ChatGPT service. Microsoft, huh? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I can see that happening. They're pretty big in AI and research. They uh, they have some partnerships with some other AI. I don't think it's open AI, is it? It is. Microsoft oh, it is invested it. a lot of money. Uh, yes. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's one way they uh, can, you know, get that money back. Is <laughs> so, you know a joint partnership, or they just buy a Chat AI and say we're not going to own you as part of our Azure thing. So yeah, I can so see my, that happening in multiple different ways. So. My my kind of my rationale for for, for that was that Microsoft are already investors in in open AI. Um, they have potentially the scale of compute to to be able to monetize the service at the scale it needs to to sort of be of value and pay for itself. Whereas OpenAI, you know, they don't have data centers; they're running in the cloud. I mean, considering we're talking about favorite announcements a little bit, um, like Azure was hard for me to find anything that I thought was good. <laughs> oh, I, I got a good one. <laughs> okay, I, I have a few that I thought were good. Yeah. I came up with, but uh, you know, I, I did struggle trying yeah. to find a good Azure uh, announcement. So, you know, if they announced the ChatGPT thing, that would be a good one. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that'd be nice. All right, so uh, I I'm not going to use this one, but uh, ironically enough, I did say this will be the year Azure wakes back up from COVID and starts in, doing real innovation. So, sort of related to what you said, but. Uh, uh, so I think this year we're going to see a much bigger push on data sovereignty, continue to force multi-cloud in a pretty heavy-duty way, uh, and that we'll see true multi-cloud security, DevOps, and observability tooling uh, come out as a specialization and really the driver of that and a, a resistance against cloud-native tools for those things. Are there any existing products that, that support multi-cloud? I mean, there definitely are companies that are kind of you know, they support multi-cloud, but it's not their big selling pitch right now. Laceworks, for example, on cloud security posture management, Palo Alto, Prisma. Um, but, you know, there was the sort of push for those being multi-cloud products. And they, they all really specialize in like AWS or Azure, and then everything else is kind of an afterthought. And I think it's you're going to see just a really <laughs> dr- strong drive towards really good tooling and, and this ability that you want single panes of glass across multi-cloud. So maybe that's, maybe that's the right way I should say it. Data sovereignty will drive single pane of glass across multi-cloud. That's interesting because you know you see right now the the providers are clearly in a rush to to get the regions in place to support this right themselves, right? Because that's how they want you to tackle this, right? Don't don't use a third party necessarily, you know, but you can you can have your data localized by uh, 
deploy into one of our many regions and native. So, but yeah, there are some places that they're just not going to support multiple hypervisor clouds, right? Like to buy in the United Arab Emirates, it's going to be hard for them to have more than a few of these because they don't have the power infrastructure, they don't have the cooling infrastructure to do that. Uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is another one where, again, like you know, our you know probably a total addressable market's a few hundred million dollars. You're not going to have enough revenue there to support. Google and Azure and GCP. Hmm. Sorry, AWS. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So I, th- I think you're going to get to the point where you're going to see more tools like the BigQuery Omni from the big providers. And then you're going to see third parties really driving a unification story around how do I unify this visibility across your clouds? All driven by data sovereignty is the big, mm-hmm. big force. Well, that's the, I think that's the thing that's going to bite you and lose to the point. Because I do think that you're going to see multi-cloud because I, I see it already happening. Multi-cloud is is the new public cloud, right? Um, but data sovereignty driving it. I mean, in some ways. We'll see how you finagle a point out of that one. Yeah, yeah we'll see. We'll see. I'm going <laughs> to tack, tack a small prediction onto your prediction, which is that it would be a very expensive service. Because the types of <laughs> enterprises that need that type of thing are going to be the Fortune 500 companies. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, not startups, yeah. deep pockets. Yeah, yeah. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring. Well, I have a simple solution: Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right, Ryan, what's your 2023 prediction? We are going to see uh, just a, a complete influx um, of all of the AI that's going on now and the no-code solutions. Um, and so you're going to see almost in every website that you're supposed to user interaction, you're going to see this sort of no code solutions being directly exposed to people um, as part of their services. Um, I, you know, when you think about, you know, software as a service being sort of where where companies going, you have companies like Atlassian like that are removing support for their on premises. Uh, offerings, you're going to start seeing integration abilities become very native and very strong in a lot of places. Oh, yeah, it's already becoming sort of ubiquitous in places I didn't expect it. But you know, it's like one of those things. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you see it everywhere, and like uh, that's that's where where I'm at right now. Yeah, I got in the, even in the article they were talking about some company that helps you lower your bills. And they were using, you know, ChatGPT to basically contact Comcast and go through the call prompt process to basically get this person's bill lowered by ten dollars. You know, and even Google a couple of years ago, if you remember, right, they did the uh, the Google Voice thing where they would call the restaurant and make a reservation for you even if they didn't take reservations. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's definitely, you know, you're going to see more purveyance of that for sure. So I, I'm, I'm putting that down as an influx of the AI and no code solution convergence. It's pretty close to what I wrote down. And it's more generic than what I said, so I like it. Did you ever use the uh, the restaurant booking service from Google? I never did. I did. Yeah. And How it, was it? It was. It worked really well. And yeah. when I walked, it was um, Mellow's here in town. And uh, oh, we, we walked in there. I'm like, hi, I'm Jonathan. And everyone was like, wow, you know, we got this phone call from Google. It was, <laughs> it, it was novel. Little celebrity. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, nice. cool. <laughs> and you never use it again. After and that. I never use it again. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Uh, All right, well, let's talk about our favorite announcements. And uh, I reversed the order from the predictions. That means, Ryan, you're first on your favorite announcements. I mean, my favorite announcement has got to be Code Catalyst. I mean, for me, it's the Pansia that I've been trying to build for years. um, And to see it sort of servicified and and real is excellent. still early days. It is very bare bones. But I, I, I believe that, like, 
cloud catalyst and that experience is beca- is going to become the new developer experience. Yeah. I, you know, I was reading a, a Twitter feed today about it, you know, and I didn't realize Emily Freeman was heavily involved in it. Uh, oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. In its development? In the development of it, yeah. Uh, so, that makes sense. Uh, that makes I did post sense. it in our host room, so if you check it out, you'll see a Twitter thread that I posted just for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, on this particular topic, because I knew you were curious about it, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was definitely interesting. Yeah, no, I, this is also my list uh, mm-hmm. as a potential option that I did not end up using. Because you check it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, was, it was one of my options too. Um, because I, I just, I like the engineering part of it. I like writing the code and d- doing the fun stuff, setting up pipelines and nah, that's, that's for the birds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, I have three because I'm overachiever. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to give my Amazon one first since you give an Amazon one. Uh, so mine is the, uh, the Lambda Snap Start, I think is probably one of my favorite announcements from AWS this year. I had a couple other good ones from them too, but that one, you know, it, even though it's only Java right now, and I know that's a boohoo, like the potential for them to add more languages to it very quickly over the next six months is there. And if they do that, I think it's going to be amazing for Lambda and really Lambda functions in general. Yeah, I agree. That's pretty neat. Oh, yeah. All right, Jonathan, what's your uh, your prediction? So my um, favorite announcement was also from reInvent, which was the VPC Lattice. Because you no longer require VPC peering to for service-to-service communication, it's uh, a purely application-lay network. Um, completely abstracts all the network complexity away from microservice communication in the cloud, and it's been like a long time coming. And it's going to completely revolutionize how how easy it is to deploy complex apps on AWS. Uh, they have announced pricing, by the way, for Lattice. Ooh, I hadn't. Uh, so basically, it is priced on three dimensions: uh, service itself, which is a service independently deployable unit of software that deploys a specific task or function that runs on instances, containers, or serverless compute. After service provision in VPC last year, charge for each hour or partial hour that is running. Uh, data processing charges are, of course, there as well per gigabyte of data transferred through each service. Uh, and they compute this by adding the amount of data in each HTTP request that service receives and corresponding HTTP response that it sends to the client. And the price per gigabyte varies by region. And then the number of requests, uh, clients and service network communicate with service by using the HTTP protocol that requires clients to send requests. Services provide a response after evaluating the requested business logic. And the number of requests that a service receives is tracked hourly. And you are charged for requests when they exceed the always free tier for a given hour. Uh, and yeah, that also varies per region. So uh, <laughs> US East uh, is 25 cents per hour for the service. The data processing charge is two is uh, two and a half or yeah two and a half cents per gigabyte, and you pay ten cents per one million requests. Uh, you get three hundred thousand free requests per hour uh, for your that regardless. So I don't know if they're cumulative or if it's uh, just all you know only that hour accounts and you don't get any cumulative uh, benefit there. But that's the that's the way it's priced. Uh, most expensive region is. Uh, basically, one of the Asia Pac uh, regions. So, like Tokyo uh, is uh, three and a quarter cents per hour, and three and a quarter cents per gigabyte, and thirteen cents per million requests. So, it's not massively more expensive, but it is more expensive. Well, the real kicker will be the price layered upon the other prices that you're already paying on top, right? Because yeah. that's really the you know think about you know gateways and in inner region traffic and. All that stuff also has its own charges. Um, it it doesn't support any kind of multi-region connectivity, but but from from those prices, you deduct the cost of transit gateway, and uh, VPC peering, and private um, endpoints, and things that you're paying for right now to solve these exact same problems. And so I, I would <laughs> think, think so, it's huh? good. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna end up with both. We don't. <laughs> we don't need both. Don't ruin I my know day. you don't need both. <laughs> He told me we'll start migrating to the service and realize there's one thing that just won't work with it because it's not HTTP or, or uh, that GRPC. I've never seen that use case, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's my favorite. Nice. That's a good one. I, I, again, I think it's early days for Lattice. We'll see how it all plays out, but super excited about it still. Ryan, you said you might have come yeah. up with a second announcement. Well, one of them, you know, was was VPC Lattice. Um, and so the second one, I'm looking for the specific one. Um which, you know, because it's more of a general sort of what I like about it is as part of a general overall flow, but it's the the step functions increase parallelization 
Um, really what I like is just the trend towards the orchestration of, of service serverless apps. Um, it's starting to really mature and, and be really usable to, to configure workflows across and starting to see, you know, some pretty good investment in that area and that orchestration. And, you know, that's, I think also, you know, closely, you know, included in the, the Lambda functions and, and that sort of improvements that you're getting at the execution as well. So it's pretty good. So I do think the parallelization was, uh, it was a 2021 feature. So I'm going to give you this other one. So this is the one I was talking about. I just said the wrong, this is the wrong The workflow observability features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for stuff functions. Okay, this is the, yeah. That's what I thought you might be thinking of. So that's why you, I'll just you give you this one. <laughs> I had it on my list as well. <laughs> so I had it. All right. Um, let me go to Azure. And uh, I was really excited about this Azure story about the collaboration with Red Button for attack simulation testing. And I still think, you know, for people who buy all this DDoS software and all this money, the ability to actually test it and actually feel confident in your strategy for that is really important. And if DDoS threats keep you up at night, the ability to go out and test it and actually say, yes, this works, I think is a way to get better sleep. And so, you know, there was slim pickings from Azure (laughs) in general. Uh, And so this one, you know, when I was going through the list of all our stories, uh, for the year, this is the one that jumped out at me. It's like, oh yeah, I remember. I remember liking it when it came out, and I still like it now, six months later. So, that's my Azure item. Mm. You're right, definitely very, very slim pickings. Yes, Jonathan. My Azure uh, story was, it was the um, the firewall advisor, where it would evaluate your rule sets and look at the traffic patterns and help you optimize the firewall rules for better performance. And it sounds like something that we shouldn't have to worry about in cloud because we like to think that everything's managed for us and regardless of how we configure a service, it'll always work in its optimal um, way. But we know that's not true. We know that this is just a facade on top of all the old networking gear that we ever used to have. And so to actually expose a way to, to optimize something in that way uh, was, was kind of interesting to me as a, as a diehard techie. We know that these that there are limits. You know, there's a limit of 100 rules in security group, and yes, you can make it bigger, but you know, there's a penalty in evaluation of those rules for all your traffic. So to, to actually sort of admit that yes, there are there are good ways and bad ways to use these these things and give you a way to help uh, make it better. I was, I was just kind of impressed. All right, Ryan, back to you for your last one. Well, that was one I was thinking because I think I know which one you're uh, you were going for there as far as so i'm gonna pivot i'm trying to choose between but i think yeah i'm gonna go with uh there's the uh source protect for cloud code announcement by gcp um and so this is that announcement is you know the source protect is a plugin you put in your your native ide and it's going to give you real-time feedback on security issues and, and vulnerable dependencies and and license reporting because this historically right now is done with, you know, set of code analysis and, and the CICD pipeline, which is awfully late when you've, you know, included an open source library that has a vulnerable dependency and all of your code is around it. Um, it's just a heavy investment. And so I think that that's getting this exposure um, directly into the IDE, into the developer interfaces. This is a super great announcement. And, you know, I struck out looking for anything for Azure. So like this, you know, that was... Not a lot there. Even even some of the Google stuff was sort of an extensions on stuff they've already built. So it was a, I think it was a mellow year in general. I just, I just think Azure has just not woken up from anything <laughs> from the pandemic. They're just sort of, you know, really uh, not not uh, hitting it up. So, all right. Well, then uh, that takes me to, I believe Google as well. So let me see if I can uh, figure out a Google one that I like. Uh, so I had a couple, um, but I think I'm going to go for these two because they're related to each other, and that is they acquired Mandiant and Simplify to dramatically increase their security operations and incident response. And so I think I'm excited for what the future of security at Google looks like from those investments. Uh, so it's a little bit early to say they're my favorite, but like the fact that they did it showed a big investment in security that I've always wanted AWS to do. And so uh, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I looked at that one. That went for a more more sort of product related techie thing because I, I haven't really monetized that in 
any sensible way yet, have they? Obviously, they're no, making no. money. I mean, from they just, I mean, store. the Mandia deal just closed like a month and a half ago. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen some roadmap conversations, what they're planning to do, and there's really cool stuff coming. <laughs> but yeah, it's not here yet. All right. All right, well, Jonathan, your third and final favorite prediction. Yeah. Uh, well, my third and final for GCP was the second generation cloud functions, which sort of gave us increases in, in concurrency uh, function, it increased the size of the instances to um, it's like 16 gig of memory and four vCPUs, and runtime up to an hour, which is, which is great for event-driven um, data processing. And also, I think what the, my sort of favorite feature of that, though, is that um, they provided a way to do uh, canaries by traffic splitting between old functions and new functions to make rolling forwards and backwards easier and testing easier if, um, if you were using this event-driven architecture. Awesome. If you, uh, you have that one, you can post that one in here too. Because <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that one's out of the note. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, overall, you know, AWS and GCP, good solid year. Azure, you have work to do. <laughs> like, I mean, there was several <laughs> weeks this year I was you know, scrolling through the list of all of our show notes archive and, you know, we didn't have a story for Azure or the story was dumb <laughs> like in comparison to what we were seeing coming out of, uh, you know, but with Charlie Bell coming online, he's been there a year now. You know, there are big investments they've supposedly been making in some of the, you know, the different capabilities, like they got to do something, man. They can't just live on top of the bundle forever <laughs> for Office 65 to grow revenue. So they need to do something. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's head up some last minute year out, close out stories here. First up, uh, in AWS land, S3 security changes are coming in April of 2023. Starting in April, Amazon will change the defaults around your S3 security. Uh, the changes will push their current best practices for bucket security automatically. The change will begin to take effect in April, and we roll out to all AWS regions within a week. Uh, so basically, if you've been creating all your buckets in the console with ClickOps, uh, you have already been impacted by this. <laughs> so this isn't really for you. Uh, but this basically automatically uh, enables, by default, the S3 block public access and access control list disabled, which are two of the main ways that people get uh, their S3 bucket compromised because they don't understand what either of those things are. Uh, this has been the default of the console for a while, like I mentioned, but now it become the default in the S3 API, the S3 CLI, the AWS SDK, and the CloudFormation implementation of buckets out of the box. So if you don't specify the parameters, you will now get a more secure by default uh, parameter, which I think is a nice change. And actually, this is something I would like to see Amazon do more of, because I think a lot of their defaults, if you don't give them parameters, are very open. Yeah, especially the differences between the UI experience and the API you know, because this is this announcement was news to me because I thought it was default, and so I think I've actually deployed public buckets not knowing, which is even more startling. Which is not great, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing that kind of bugs me about this, so I, I, I absolutely agree with the, the drive for better security and better awareness around security, and I, I think it should probably have always been a um, security first closed bucket, which you had to open explicitly. But I mean, it was designed to be a to host web websites, so I can kind of see how they ended up in this position. But at the same time, it, they're still kind of breaking this contract that we have with them, that, that this piece of cloud formation will work in perpetuity and provide a repeatable experience, and it's going to break a bunch of stuff for a lot of people. And they had the option to, to version CloudFormation documents differently. They could have bumped the version of CloudFormation, for example, so that if you use the previous version of, of the uh, schema, you got the old experience. If you use a new version of scheming, you get the new experience. But they didn't do that. I'm a bit disappointed. Yeah, and it's only still dated with the version. The date's like still in 2011 or something. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's crazy to me that they don't take advantage of that more. Yeah, it's uh, definitely. I've always wondered about that date in CloudFormation. <laughs> it's like a 2012 <laughs> date, isn't it? Not. Yeah, yeah, it's something I can't remember the exact, but it's yeah, it's 2011, 2012. It's yeah, it's it's forever old, and I, you sort of are like, what is the point of this thing? <laughs> so it, yeah, you're right. You could have versioned it. You could have given us a new version of the template that you would then know it's a breaking change. Um, yeah, it is a sort of interesting choice. I feel like there's some tech debt. Yeah, and even if it, even if it wasn't a version at the at the CloudFormation sort of level, they could figure out a way of versioning objects within CloudFormation so that you could you could always get the experience that you used to have. 
Well, another thing it's the other thing about this too is it's only impacting new buckets. So it doesn't go back and change existing buckets either. So it's also that confusion of like, well, this worked last week, but now all of a sudden this week it doesn't work when it flips. So it's gonna it'll cause people to have some some heartburn, I'm sure. September 9th, 2010 is the date. <laughs> the documentation it says it defines the capabilities of the template. This is the latest template format version, and it is currently the only valid value. Yes. So there is something behind the scenes that really requires that. And it's clearly if you try to change not, it ever, it'll blow it's up. It's clearly not a version control thing, even though it's called template format version. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fun to have some secret secret version you can deploy with access to new stuff. Just test force it, Jonathan. Just write yeah. a script that just you know rolls yeah. through. September tenth, September eleventh, twelfth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, if you have, uh, are an ECS user, like I am, uh, you have probably noticed that there's a new console that you could opt into, and you opt in, and then you opt right back out. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, you'll have, no longer have the ability to opt in or opt out, because the new default will be the new console, which is sort of unfortunate for me, just because I I feel like the new console is still missing things, where like, things are hidden, because I can't quite fight, figure out where they put them. Um, so I'm just going to have to learn it the hard way. Uh, but some of the uh, enhancements apparently coming to the new ECS console, for those of you who like a guided deployment experience, that's uh, now part of the WYSIWYG of the new console. So again, just going to use more Terraform. Uh, it's all powered by CloudFormation or the hood, so when you do do things in the new console, it does generate CloudFormation that you can get access to. Uh, it does support all the new accessibility things. It supports dark mode uh, and has all the unified settings to cross all of your compute instances, uh, browsers for this. So. Uh, that's unfortunate. January, I will be cursing the console when I am in it. So is it kind of like the the new Route 53 experience for ECS? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> remember the remember when they first did the new EC2 instance launch wizard? It was, and then everything yeah. got named launch wizard one. It sort of feels like that a little bit. It's not quite <laughs> that egregious, but it's up there. Yeah, I mean, it removing some of the visibility that you had linking between clusters and and container versions and tasks and and that which. That's really the cardinal sin for me. Is that I don't think it's hidden. I think it's removed. Um, and I just, and you know, I haven't. It's been a while since I've looked at it because I've I've given up on it entirely. I use ECS, but only through API and, and Terraform driven actions. Well, if uh, you're happy about that, maybe you'll be happier with the fact that ECS is going to now enable you to configure port ranges for your container as part of the port mapping. Port mapping, or uh, specifying the container definition, allows containers to access ports on the host container instance to send or receive traffic. In addition to individual ports, Amazon ECS now allows your application to access an entire range of ports that you select by opening these ports in the container for you and binding them to the ports on the host. This is a long time coming. Yeah, no, I was like, I think I requested this feature. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what do you mean we have to open up every ephemeral, possible yeah. ephemeral port to this machine? You can use this service, yeah. You just can't use it and have any kind of network security that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one person who uses Knackles will be very happy with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, if you like widgets for your homepage, Amazon has two new sets of widgets for you this week. The first up is new security widgets. Uh, you can add to your Amazon console to provide you a summary of your security posture generated by the security checks that you have enabled in your account using AWS Security Hub. Uh, so your security posture, key insights into security scores, and how many security controls have failed and any critical findings in your account. And then you can explain to your CISO why it says your security controls are failing. And that's not really what it means, but it's a, it is nice to have that quick dashboard view of it. And then if uh, you are always wishing to have your systems manager widgets, uh, that's also now here, where you can view the operational status as soon as you sign in, take necessary actions or immediate operational issues with a one-click access to AWS Systems Manager features, and you can view how many managed instances you have, the patch compliance, and the op summary of issues on those instances, all from the widget. So there you go. I mean, as much as I laugh at the widgets thing, like the Systems Manager widget is is kind of what I wanted from the get-go in, in a lot of these changes. Like being able to customize a lot of those views, especially if you do have sort of compute heavy workloads. Um, it is kind of nice to not have to go digging for all of that and have it just be sort of something you see as you're logging in, something else, something that's it just keeps it in front of you. Because that's that's where you see that you've got, you know, you know, a whole bunch of, it, you know, the inventory process isn't allowed to complete on a bunch of hosts. And you'll see that, you know, it's not something you'll, you're necessarily going to alert on or, or want to page someone in the middle of the night, but you kind of want to know about it. 
Moving to GCP, uh, the new control plane connectivity and isolation options are coming to your GKE clusters, starting with version 1.23 and later. All new public clusters created on or after March 15, 2022, began using the Google Cloud PSC infrastructure to communicate between GK cluster control plane and nodes. The PSC provides a consistent framework that helps connect different networks through a service networking approach and allows service producers and consumers to communicate using private IP addresses internal to the VPC. This new capability allows several features, including allowing access to the control plane only via private endpoint, which, thank goodness, allowing toggling and mixed node clusters with public and private node pools, configure access from Google Cloud, and choose your private endpoint address so you'll now know where it is. That's neat. And I find some irony in that the, the cloud providers have been pushing service mesh for so, such a long time, yet failed to implement it entirely for any of their own access to any of their own services. And so we end up with these, you know, the, the private the private link thing for Amazon, and now we've got this offering from Google. And it's, it's kind of like a, a tack-on thing, where it's really this could have been the strategy from the beginning. You know, if if, if, uh, if we don't want to go egress out to the, the internet side of, of um, the network, why wasn't this always an option? Really? But but, it, but it's, it's certainly good now. Well, in the, in the Amazon case, like, they invented all this. <laughs> so I'm sort of like, you know, you, you get a pass because it's, you know, your original network for hyperscale, you know, you're kind of living with some of your decisions you made a long time ago. Uh, but Google, you're right. Google Google didn't have to make that choice and they could have got adopted service mesh from day one and they chose not to. I think it's hard. I think you're, because you're talking about an abstraction on top of an abstraction. So service mesh, you want to enable you know, as a feature or a service to your customers, but effectively that's what you're doing to route all this stuff under the covers. Right. And so like, I think I'm guessing a choice was made um, for Google where they were looking at it and it was like, well, we could have this, but it's going to, it's so foundational that it would have changed the roadmap. So I I think that's part of it as well. And our final main show story, Microsoft is finally the number one. In a cloud thing. <laughs> and that cloud thing is industrial IoT, which is pretty niche. Uh, Amazon was only a, a challenger on the new magic quadrant for global industrial IoT. Google, of course, wasn't on the list because they gave up on IoT. And uh, that's all I have to say about it. Go number one. Mm-hmm. Woo! Did they buy yeah, somebody yeah, to, to get to that place? Or, or like, I, don't, I mean, Gardner's. I mean, the, the only reason why I think really Microsoft would even be in the top leader spot of that is because they have. All of the embedded Windows technology is actually in the machines. Oh, that's that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking too. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay, Siemens is on the list too, and Siemens is other you know pretty big PLC controller, uh, and you know they're in the visionary, almost crossing over into the leadership quadrant. So, you know, definitely uh, there's some shenanigans, I'm sure, in this. I didn't, I didn't even bother to go find the actual real magic quadrant to see what the pluses and minuses were. I didn't care enough, but. Uh, I just thought it was funny for Microsoft. Was it the year's number one? It's something in yeah. cloud. Not, not anything they've, yeah. Not a new feature, not an enhancement. Like, yeah. A rating. All right. Well, Peter's not here for the final lighting round. Um, so I don't, I mean, technically, that means I won. Oh, that means you win. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not going to score today. But uh, unless I am so funny. Unless you're so funny today, Ryan, that we, we decided to give you na- multiple points. Yeah. But uh, I do feel like this year was the best competition between the three of us because I think we all were on our game for most of the year. Uh, and I didn't feel like I ran away with it and had won the yeah. game by the summer. So I appreciate I mean, I do think I got a couple of pity votes like over the course of the year. I'll, I'll admit that. But, uh, you know, I take my wins where I get them. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised we, we only awarded 23 points this year when we recorded. <laughs> well, that's, how, that's just a testament to how little Peter was here this year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would comment, but those in glass houses too. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Ryan, I, I made you the first uh, for lighting around this week. Excellent. Fortuna, an open source library for uncertainty quantification of ML models, is now available. I'm sure. Fortuna. I don't need to do this in my day job. I don't need to quantify how I am uncertain about what this is. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan, I stole yours. <laughs> Jumped in on you fast. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm used to it. That's why you're winning. You don't want to stole the points. All right. AWS Marketplace introduces free trials for SaaS usage-based pricing products. Wow, we kept this in. <laughs> 
I was letting you, I was giving you a chance to have a joke. I was going to say, well, I can't wait to forget to turn off the Salesforce subscription that I had a trial on in my Amazon account. Now I'm paying $100,000 a month for Salesforce. That's what I was yeah. thinking. But sorry, that was my joke. So the, the, the chat GPT contribution, why did the expensive SaaS products give a free trial so they could charge an arm and a leg later? Um, very nice. nice. Very nice. <laughs> See, I, I remember earlier I said they have sort of a pattern. Yes. Like, yeah. 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 Dad like jokes he, are written by. Why did the chicken GPT. cross the road? <laughs> Generally available as your dedicated host restart. I mean, it's Windows, right? It should have been the first feature. <laughs> yeah. All you do is reboot that thing. I can't believe anything's ever worked on Windows. Right. Amazon ECS now integrates with Amazon CloudWatch alarms to improve safety for deployments. No, Unreliable maybe. deployments? Not on my watch. <laughs> uh, I much prefer the idea of having a dev calling me at three in the morning because they're, you know, the deployment isn't working properly and you know it's failing. So why would I want to why would I want to know the answer without having to troubleshoot for at least two hours on a call before I go to the console and just realize, oh, it's restarting every five seconds. Why? Yeah. Why would I want this? I mean, my kingdom for the the CloudWatch alarms not to be tied to like a useless CPU threshold um, for this. So it's like it's this isn't going to change the behavior of many deployments. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you mean the process went to 100%? Well, it's booting up Java technically. So <laughs> it's got to start instantiate. It's got to load data. It's got to do things. It's an error. Rollback. No, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Amazon EC2 Describe Images API now supports pagination. I mean, it's a it's a thing that I'm glad exists. I mean, <laughs> it was so hard to type little. in pipe more. And you know, <laughs> I mean it was annoying when you do it, like because you would get you just scroll your console for like, oh yeah, that's right. I gotta yeah. I gotta filter this down. Or pipe to more. <laughs> and it worked just fine. That's what I that was my trick. Un- unrelated or slightly related but not funny is I also saw that they are hiding images older than two years now too oh, good. so that you, you, people aren't constantly deploying these ancient versions of, uh, of any OS oh that's good I mean it is nice that they finally realized that there's a thing called pagination though and that yeah. people may be actually using a command line that isn't a computer that might need this so I do appreciate the effort but just 10 years too late <laughs> I'm just I'm shocked you know like yeah. Stunned. Just, this is the innovation you get from Amazon these days. Stunned. Yeah. Pagination. And everyone goes, woo! Yeah. <laughs> I actually kind of like the, the way Google ties images to, to projects. And so, you know, there's a CentOS project or there's a Debian project or there's a different one. So you can very specifically just list out the images that, that you really care about. I know you can do it by account with AWS, but for public images, it's, it's a bit of a crapshoot. The, the account construct in Amazon for image searching is not really well known. And if you don't, like, you don't go to Ubuntu's website and they say, "Hey, it's just filter by account," <laughs> you right. know, that's not that's not a, a thing people think about. Yeah, and you can have duplicative, you know, image names across multiple accounts. Yeah. Right. So it's hard to enforce with the Amazon model. Bring ML models built anywhere into Amazon SageMaker Canvas and generate predictions. And this is how they're going to get Chat GPT into AWS. <laughs> <laughs> When Azure doesn't give uh, try to, you know, those guys a good deal on Azure cloud, cloud hosting, they'll just move to AWS through SageMaker Campus. Perfect. If you can't beat them, join them. Mm-hmm. AWS Gateway Load Balancer and Gateway Load Balancer Endpoint now support IPv6 traffic. And I will still not support IPv6 in my brain. <laughs> so, appreciate it. I mean, the good thing about IPv6 jokes is that you don't need the punchline for 15 years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You also won't be able to remember it because it's too long. <laughs> yeah. <That's fine. laughs> well, uh, that wraps up 2022, guys. Uh, it has been another fantastic year with all three of you. Uh, well, two of you tonight, but three of you normally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, I can't believe we're already at 193 episodes. Uh, we're so close to 200 episodes, and we haven't even talked about what we're going to do for 200. But, uh, you know, we wrote a blog post for 100. The chat GPT do the, the Yeah, we should episode. have them write it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been it's been fun though. It's been another fantastic year. We did take a little more time off this year. Um, you know, I know. I think we're next year. We're going to try to focus down our topics a little bit. We're going to drop some of our you know some of the early access and preview announcements, and we're going to focus mostly on the big ones. And we're probably going to talk a little bit more about some industry trends and things that we're seeing. And you'll hear more of our opinions about some of these things that are happening in the market because 
Um, you know, if we have one more year of Azure just doing nothing, we, I don't know why we even keep covering Azure. But I think we can. I think we have a much better conversation, and so I think we're we're gonna play with the show a little bit next year. We're gonna do some try some new things, and you know, we'd love to hear from you. And this is a great time to pitch our Slack team, or you know, if you don't want to be on Slack because you have too many Slack teams, which I have too many. Uh, I understand. Uh, you know, you, we do, you can find us on OG AWS or the FinOps Foundation. We're out there as well, uh, or even on the last week in AWS Slack team. But uh, we're also out on Twitter, of course. And then you can always just write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love that. Uh, I always love to see people post. I even saw someone on Reddit the other day mention our Cloud Pod uh, podcast in a, in a thread, unprompted by me. So that was always great. Uh, so yeah, so you know, there's. We love all of you. We hope you all have a great happy holidays and uh, thank you for listening for another fantastic year. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, well said. Thank you. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.